Welcome to the Providence Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Chris Pray. If you'd like to stay connected, download our app Providence Community from your phone's app store or visit our website at providencecommunity.org. Good morning. Uh, I'm still new, but are, are you sick of me yet? <laughs> well, I'm sick of me, so no, I'm not. Hello to my wife and daughter, who are, my daughter Melissa is here with the three kids. You can't see them, but I can, because they're watching online. Um, hello, my beautiful daughter, beautiful grandkids, three granddaughters through there, and my other daughter has two more granddaughters and a grandson, one grandson. I have three daughters, six grandchildren, and only one of them is a male, and and. His mom, my middle daughter, was pregnant, and he was pleading with her, please have a girl, or please have a boy, please have a boy, there's no boys. And then little Minnie was born, a girl, and uh, he loves her, but he wants to have a boy. When they all get together, anybody ever do that? You get together with your cousins, and you're the only one of that gender? Anybody here? Nobody? Oh, oh, yeah, you, oh. The saddest looking person in the room right there. <laughs> he is, I'm so sorry, man. <laughs> it's, it's sad. <clears throat> As I said, when I play golf with uh, three of my friends and we get together, we realize that between the four of us, we have 13 daughters and no sons. <laughs> I heard some, oh, no. I, I love my daughters and <clears throat> they're awesome. Um, yeah, next week I'm, I'm going to do... Uh, the Sunday sessions at 9 o'clock in there. I'd love to have you join me if you can. Um, I know it means getting up earlier and coming earlier, but that means I have to do the same thing, so that's no big deal. Um, and I'm old, so there you go. Um, <clears throat> my one granddaughter was up yesterday at 3.30 in the morning. Yeah, exactly. Um, <clears throat> remember when you were little and... You used to get up early to see the cartoons at 6 and Saturday morning. Remember Saturday mornings, cartoons? Yeah, you'd get up. Like You had to see Looney Tunes and Rocky and Bullwinkle and just all those early morning cartoons. Now I don't care. I don't care at all about a 6 o'clock cartoon. Um, <clears throat> but our lives change. We, we see things that are important when we're young, and we don't, we don't carry the same passions, and they shift when we're older. And, and for me, um, <clears throat> I, I grew up in a, a particular denomination where you heard the word father connected to God, um, but there was nothing relationally given. There was no invitation to know him. It was a religious kind of a package. And I kind of wanted to start there um, in, in for a second because I don't want to just tell a story. I want to give you biblical truth. A story is good. We've all got testimonies, which are great. Do you mind if I put this down? Because I'm looking over there and I'm looking at a mic. There. Um, testimonies are wonderful. We all have one. We need them. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. So testimonies are powerful. <clears throat> they proclaim the goodness and the power of God. And we always need to have them. Um, <clears throat> but I want to root any kind of testimony or story I have in what I know to be true biblically. Um, theology is important. Philosophy is great, but if it's not rooted in good theology, it's just another opinion. Um, so 
in, uh, you all know in, in the book of Revelation, uh, yeah, I'm going to tell my dad's story in the book of Revelation. <laughs> He's going, what? Um, <laughs> um, remember the church of Ephesus? It kind of starts out to, to, uh, in chapter 2, it's a, letters to seven churches. And it, it goes to the, the church of Ephesus. And the church of Ephesus was hardworking. It said, I know your, your works. I know your perseverance. I know your patience. I know that you abhor that which is evil. And it goes on and on and on. And, and uh, it, it's, it's a wonderful kind of a testimony of a church. But it gets to one point and he said, but you lack this one thing. Um, you've lost what? Your first love. And if you go to the book of Ephesians, which is where that letter is written to, and here's Paul in, in chapter 1. I want to give you the context. You've got this church that in Revelations, they lost their first love. But they were persevering. They were patient. They, they overcame things. They didn't like evil. And so um, they were into everything that was good in the church except love. So in other words, they were extremely religious. Religiosity is the doing of the church things without love. Is that okay? That's why we're silly sometimes because then you throw those at you. Okay, therefore, Paul says, I heard of your faith. In, I'm, in, I'm in Ephesians 1, verse 16. I don't cease to give thanks for it. He says, I make mention of you in my prayers. Paul is praying for the church of Ephesus. And he says this, in 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom, which is what we get as we grow, and revelation, which just comes down. There are two different forms of God giving us something. One, we gain over time. And the other, God just sends our way. We can pray for revelation. That's good. He said, I pray for revelation. But I pray you also get wisdom. For what? In the knowledge of him. So what Paul's prayer is, you don't know him. You're doing things for him, but you don't know him. It's like if you're a contractor or subcontractor, you're working on a job, and you go into the house, you get the work done, and you get a check at the end of the, at the, end of the uh, work day or whatever you're done, and you're finished with your project, but you don't know the owner of the house. So you're working in the house, but you don't know the owner. So you might get a benefit from it out of your work, but you get no connection to the one who owns it. And heavens, oh gosh, may, may we never be our testimony. May, may we never be those that church becomes the thing we do, but we come into here, but we don't know the father that's in the house. Okay? And then Paul goes over. So Paul's praying. He's fervently praying. And if you go over to um, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 16 again, he says, well, actually in 14, he says, I bow my knees. So here's Paul. He's going to pray for them again. He says, this is what, I, what he prays, that you would be strengthened with might through God's spirit in, the, in your inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you be rooted and grounded in faith. Works. <laughs> Love. So Paul is, he's pleading with the church of Ephesus. Please, you need to know the depth of, be rooted and grounded. I mean, he says, in, in the next verse, he says this, to comprehend with all the saints, the width, the length, the depth, the height. And then in verse 19, to know the love of Christ. He's saying again, please, I don't want you to just 
know of Christ. I want you to know the love of Christ. And I want everything about you to be rooted and grounded in the knowledge of God's affection to you. We have it backwards. We're preached that all the time to love God, love God, love God, love God. That's good. But love is a response to being loved. If he's the bridegroom, he initiates affection. We respond to affection. To those that don't see the initiation, there's a limited response, and it's usually done on a religious level. We having fun? <laughs> is that good? Okay, this is what we're going to talk about the next four weeks. I, and scooting over, and one last scripture I'm going to use as a springboard to my, my, my dad's story is, is here. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he's talking about the new covenant. Paul's talking about the glory of the new covenant. He's talking about Moses, and he went up to the mountain. He had to come down. He had a veil on his face because the brightness was just too much for everybody. And then... Um, he says this, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil's taken away. And then he has the Braveheart verse. Remember Braveheart? Okay. In 1995, I think it was, Braveheart came out. I can't believe it. 25 years ago? Wow. I was just five at the time. Um, <clears throat> my mother didn't let me see it. Um, no. <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> um, Braveheart. And he gets to that, that big thing where the, they're all lined up. You know, you got those two little farmer guys, the teenage guys that want, they want a chicken out. They're in like row eight, you know, and they've got this old rusty hoe and a stick, and, you know, and they're looking at the other guys with long bows and horses and spears and, you know, they're, they're just scared. They want to go home. And, and so William Wallace comes up with a horse and he goes back and forth. And in the end, he says, they'll never take away our, oh, They'll never take away our freedom. Okay, they'll never take away our freedom. That was good. I was doing worship one time at a conference with a guy named David Roos. David is on the keyboard, I'm on the guitar, and we're singing along. He goes, come here. So I come over thinking that he's not going to do his song and I'm going to do an extra song. He looks at me and goes, watch this. And this is 1995, 1996, okay? So he's playing the keyboard and he starts talking. And you know, God has given us, a, not given us a spirit of fear. He's given us power, love, and a son mind. Because he knows that we want to have liberty because liberty sets us free because he wants us to have our, you know, and he sets the whole thing up for the Braveheart thing and everybody screams out, freedom! Like four, 8,000 people, I forgot which conference it was, thousands of people screaming out freedom. And he looks at me and goes, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> I, like they all went there. It's like, well, good, good. You manipulated them into a scream. I love that. <clears throat> so the Braveheart verse is this. The Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But <clears throat> the next word is but. It's a conjunction, which means it joins verse 17 to verse 18. So verse 17, the spirit of the Lord is is there to give us liberty for 18. 17 sets you up for 18. So what's the spirit of the Lord there for to give us liberty? To behold with an unveiled face in a mirror the glory of the Lord. And here's, here's where I want to get at. God's spirit wants to set you up to bring you liberty, to behold as in a mirror God's image. And then it says this, you're transformed into the image you see. 
So the image you behold is the person you become. If your image of God is limited, your response of affection is limited. If you don't think God's good, you don't press towards someone you don't think is good. You do religion. This is why it's so important to know him. That's what Paul said. Wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The whole purpose of wisdom and revelation is to know him. And if you don't know him, then we're doing church. Okay, I'm looking at some people that are going, I hate you, <laughs> but I know you don't. <laughs> Why is that important to me? Why do I have passion about this? Because uh, my, my dad was one of four brothers, had an older sister, and then four brothers born one year after the other, my poor grandmother. Four children, four and under. Actually, I think it was three and under at the time. And it was always all said of them that if one of them has a dollar, they all have a quarter. And that's how they live their life. So when my oldest uncle Pete, who's still alive, by the way, he's harmonica Pete, 97 years old, awesome. He, he plays harmonica at NBA and NFL and Major League Baseball games. You see him before playing the Star Spangled Banner. It's pretty awesome. He's 97. And look up harmonica Pete sometime. Not now. <laughs> And then my dad, my Uncle Paul, my Uncle Tom. So when he graduated from high school, these guys worked part-time jobs and helped put my Uncle Pete through college. And then they did the same thing for my dad and for my Uncle Paul and for my Uncle Tom. And they, be, they became executives and teachers and lawyers. They helped each other through. I, you know, we don't have that kind of thing today very often. But they had it then. And World War II broke out. And my father, who was afraid of heights, joined the Air Force. Yeah, I know. Makes no sense. <clears throat> they were very close brothers. One joined the Air Force, and the next one got old enough, he joined the Air Force. And then my Uncle Paul joined the Air Force. He ended up over in the Pacific. My Uncle Pete, he ended up in, in uh, Battle of the Bulge. My father joined the Air Force. He ended up flying all through Europe. And then my Uncle Tom, he joined the Air Force. And he was too, by the time he joined, he was too young, and, and they kept him back in the States. But he did his, his job as a veteran. <clears throat> and so my father uh, became a bombardier and a radar guy on B-17s. Um, if you ever, what was it called? What's that movie with the, Memphis Bell. If you ever see Memphis Bell, my, my, my dad fits in perfectly with one of the characters who's a, who's a poet and a singer. My dad was like that. His, his nickname was Nice Guy Dave. He would hold the door. He would see someone coming across the street and he'd stand there and just hold the door. And not obligating, he would just smile. I've been waiting for you, you know. And he, he was just an, a nice guy, but he was very serious. Nice, polite, but very serious. And being afraid of heights and being, if you know anything about a B-17, the, the front is all this thick plastic plexiglass kind of a thing. And the bombardier is right there. And so literally his foot, everything underneath him, is it's all glass. So if you're afraid of heights and a plane is taking off, I mean, think about it. If you're on a plane, it's going to take off, and you're there, and everything is clear in front of you. That was his world for flight after flight after flight after flight. <clears throat> and he'd go over from, uh, from England, over the English Channel, into France, and he'd bomb all these areas in France. And they never bombed cities. They bombed installations. They would bomb warehouses and bridges and things that the Germans had set up 
One of the things the Americans did not do until late 1945 was to bomb cities. The only city they ever bombed was Berlin. So <clears throat> the, he's, he's on his 13th bombing mission. And he, they cross over, well, I won't get into where they're crossing over from France to Germany. And that whole line, it's called the Siegfried Line, had been set up and no one could cross over it because it was so mightily uh, filled with military anti-aircraft and everything. You just couldn't get through until January of 1945. They finally broke the Siegfried Line. He crossed over uh, in, in a squadron of B-17s and they had pulled back the Siegfried Line to near Brandenburg area and that became a secondary one and, and my father's squadron was decimated. My father's plane was one of them. He, and his orders were when, if we were shot, if an engine was out and, it was, and people were going to abandon ship, he was to go to the back and take out the back half people, make sure they got out of the plane. Pilot and co-pilot would take care of the front. So he scooted to the back. Tail gunner had jumped out. The, you know the turret gunner, the guy underneath the plane in the plastic bubble, kind of like Chewy, Chewbacca and Star Wars? Okay, when I say that, people go, well, oh, okay, Chewbacca. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> so he, my, my dad's best friend during the war was there, and he, he had his hand up because you he needed help getting in and out. And it had to be small. It couldn't be a big guy that was in there because there wasn't much room. So his hand is up. My father grabs his hand, and he pulls, and it's, it's dead weight. And he looks down, and he sees why, because his head is almost completely severed. He had been shot, and, and it literally had nearly severed his head. My dad turns his head and vomits, gets up and goes over to get the, the two side gunners. Um, the guy on the starboard side, he had jumped out. The guy on the port side, the plane had been going up and down. This guy over here on the left side, he went up, hit his head, became unconscious. He's lying down unconscious on the ground. A, a second engine goes out. Pilot says, abandon ship, get out. And my father doesn't know what to do. So he picks the guy up, holds the ripcord and throws him out of the plane. And the guy survived. And he, years later, when I would see him, he'd always take my cheek. Your daddy saved my life. No, that was cute when I was five. <laughs> but when I'd see him when I was 16, you're, I said, please, I know, I know. <clears throat> so I remember after, shortly after I was saved, I forgot his name was Skinner or Simmons or something like that. I'm walking along the street after I'm saved, and now I'd been saved a whole year, so I knew everything. <clears throat> and I walk along the street, and the Lord says to me, I want you to be like Mr. Simmons. I thought, what, be obnoxious to children? <laughs> he goes, no, I want you to be happy every day that you're saved. I want you to wake up and be glad for your salvation. I went, oh, God, you're so right. So my dad goes to jump out, and he gets near the edge of the plane, and he goes to jump, and he's scared, and he pulls his head back. The second he pulls his head back, a piece of shrapnel comes by, grabs his leather cap, and sticks it to the side of the plane. Had he gone forward, it would have gone through his head, and you would have another speaker this morning. But it didn't. And my dad's like, ah, and the pilot screams, get out. So my father finally jumps out of the plane. Three seconds later, the plane explodes. But the explosion hit him so hard, it was like a huge, giant fist. And he just rolled and tumbled backwards. And he went out for a little bit and came to as he's starting to go down. <clears throat> and they, they were always told, um, make sure you don't pull your ripcord until you get to 1,500 feet. 1,500 feet is a long way. You start out at 30,000, 
and it's a long way down. So 1,500 feet. How do you know it's 1,500? It's because every time the pilot would take off or would land, whenever they got to 1,500 feet, the pilot would yell out, 1,500. And everyone would look out the window, and they would memorize what 1,500 looked like. So he knew what 1,500 looked like. So he's dropping, and he's listening to men scream as planes are exploding around him. He's watching guys fall, companions from his squadron fall without parachutes opening. And he's 19 years old. So we, we sent young ones. We still do. And, and any time that you can honor a veteran, do it. If you see somebody eating, pick up their tab. Do those things that make a difference. And so my dad is falling. He gets down to 1,500 feet, and he, he pulls his ripcord. And as he says, I learned a very valuable lesson that day. Never, under any circumstances, put on your parachute upside down. He had put his parachute on upside down. Now, some are thinking, well, no, you got your parachute. You put it through here. Not 1940s parachutes. There were four holes, almost all the same size. And if you're in a hurry, you can put your arms through the leg holes and your leg through the arm holes. I know. I've done my research. <laughs> and so it was upside. The second it turned upside down, his feet went up here. And now he's going like this towards the earth. And those parachutes, you land on the earth between 10 and 30 miles an hour depending on how straight you drop. You want to drop at an angle. You don't want to drop as, as straight as possible. So he's going to hit the ground head first between 10, 20, maybe 30 miles an hour. So he's doing everything he can. He starts pulling on the cords, and he gets his head above the cords, gets his head above his feet, and he's only got one thing to steer, and he steers, and he's getting closer. There's trees. You go away from trees because men find you in trees and shoot you. And so he comes away, and there's a field. He goes towards the field, and it's January 1945, and he looks down at the field, and it's, it's a field of corn that had been cut before. Now, I know this is farm country. I grew up in farm country, and corn is really close. If it's not close, corn doesn't grow, so you plant it close. So think about 10,000 swords up in the air ready to grab you and come and invite you into their world. And so he goes, I can't do that. So he pulls over to the side, and there's a spot there where there's no corn. He gets down. At the last second, he realizes the reason there's no corn is because corn does not grow on a boulder. And there's a boulder right there. And he puts his right leg down, goes like that, and it breaks his right leg in nine places. He's taken by the French underground. <clears throat> he thinks he's okay, but they come to him and they say, I've got good news and bad news. What's the good news? The good news is that you're alive. What's the bad news? The bad news is your leg is broken in nine places. You're going to get gangrene really soon. Unless you get medicine, you're going to die. The only thing option that we have is that we have somebody here <coughs> who can take your leg off. My dad wasn't very attached to his leg. Sorry. <laughs> that was bad. <laughs> We needed a breather in there somewhere. <laughs> so he said, what's the, any other options? They go, well, the only other option is we give you, take you into town and, and, and drop you off at Nazi headquarters. <clears throat> he said, they're the only ones that have the medication. They took it away from everybody. No doctor has it. Only the Nazis have it. So my father said, I want my leg. Take me there. I know. So they took him there. And they did give him medication, but then they threw him in Stalag uh, Luft Three. Stalag Luft 3, if you don't know anything about it, they made a movie called The Great Escape from Stalag Luft 3. That's where my father was. 
and there was a young, it's towards the end of the war, and you had two kind of guards. One guard that said, be nice to these Americans because we will be their captives soon. Because <laughs> the war is ending and they knew which way it was going to go. Then you had the other guards, the guards that were young, and they said, I hate these Americans, I hate these British, I can't stand that they got medication that should have gone to our men, and they abused many men in those last moments of the war. My father was one of those who spent the rest of the war being abused by young um, Nazi guards who were angry the way that the war was going. My father came out of the war two different people. If you know the story of Dr. Jekyll, there's a Dr. Jekyll who's a just an amazing, brilliant scientist, and then there's Mr. Hyde, who's the monster. My father came out two different people. A lot of people only knew the good dad. I got the other guy. I grew up, I had an older sister. She got some abuse, mostly uh, verbal, a couple of slaps. My, my brother is older than I am. He was sick those first few years, spent a lot of time in the hospital. My father looked at him as weak and looked down at him as weak. And then I came along as the third and last child. I was not expected. I was not wanted initially, especially by him. He didn't want another one to hold him down. And I came along and I was healthy. And for the first eight years of my life, I was a pincushion. I spent time up in the air. I spent time in the back of the hand, the front of the hand, a boot, a belt, uh, in public, a slap, a hit. Um, he, he, he couldn't control himself in anger. Now, when you're a kid and you're young like that, <coughs> you only see your dad one way. You don't know what he went through. Okay? As I'm older, I can look back and go, I have no clue what it would be like to be 19 years old and to be blown out of a plane at 30,000 feet, to have my parachute go upside down, to watch men around me screaming as they die, and then to land, break my leg, get thrown into a Nazi cell and get abused for the rest of the war and then come out normal. That, that's, a, that's a tough thing. And a lot of us have parents that were in the war and they didn't talk about it. My dad didn't talk about it much and I was teaching seventh grade and I had him come in to give a history of World War II because of what he had done. And he was a history teacher. He stood in front of the class and told his story and I sat there with my mouth wide open not knowing what had happened to him. And I just took notes. I cannot believe. And I suddenly as an adult, I saw what my dad went through. And then I get to meet the Lord. And the first thing I, I, the Lord says to me is, what are you going to do about your father? Because by that time, you know what hate is like? You know the levels of hate? I hope you don't. I, I had them. I hated my dad. And then in Montreal, he decided to take a swipe at me when I was 12 or 13 years old and punched me in the face because he thought I said something I didn't say in front of 100, 500 people on the streets of Montreal during uh, the World's Fair. So it was, it was packed. And I laid on the ground and I, I entered into another level of hatred for my father. So to me, father was a four-letter word. And then I meet the Lord and they start singing about, oh, I love you, father, I love you. And I'm going, I don't see it. Jesus is cool. He's got long hair. I like that. My hair was so long, when it got wet, I could go like this and touch my hair. And it was dark brown. I, I, but I'm starting to, I don't know if you see it, I got some gray hair coming on the side. Um, <laughs> sorry. 
Sorry, yeah, I can't see it. <laughs> I love you. <clears throat> and I, I'm, I'm struggling as a Christian. How do I forgive this man who hurt me so much? How do I forgive someone I had so much hatred for? I couldn't, I couldn't receive and give. I couldn't receive God's affection and then give it. I, I, I just knew that I was saved. I knew I was going to go to heaven. I didn't know about really loving Jesus I just wanted to obey this father because I knew what it was like when you don't obey a father. And I'm going through this, this thing, and it's, it's one thing after another. I'm getting on my knees. Lord, I forgive my father in Jesus' name. That's why, and I would stand up and go, I, I think I'm okay. And someone would say, hey, you do anything for Father's Day for your dad? I go, I hate him. <laughs> this thing would just... You know, it's, it's, it's like Alien when the little guy comes out of the chest. You know, <laughs> kids don't see that movie. But, <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of those things that I, 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 how do I get from one point to another? I kept praying, Lord, help me, help me, help me. And I, I, I had this, this time where I, I literally went face to face. I was awake and I was moved to a hillside. I went face to face with Jesus who looked at me and held me and I'm looking at his face and he's holding my head and I'm dipping it down and he holds my chin in the back of my head and holds me so tight and I am awake. I literally went from my apartment eating lunch to a hillside face to face and he looks at me and goes, for what you're called to do and for who you're called to be, you need to know how deeply I love you. And I'm looking at him and tears are coming down and suddenly I'm back in my room and I'm going, this is, I need to know God's affection. So I start to go on this journey of God's affection at the same time. And I say, Lord, what are you doing with my dad? And he says, honor your father. <gasps> that's how I love my dad. I don't try to, to stir up love that's not there. I need to honor him. So I honor him with cards and, and phone calls and being there on his birthday and and all those kinds of things. And on the, on the 4th of July, 1982, I'm on my way over to my dad's house because July 4th was his favorite holiday. And I have my wife and I have two little kids in the car, and my little baby, uh, and Andrea's about three years, four years old. And um, the Lord says to me in the car, I want you to forgive your father today. I said, Lord, I, I have. He goes, no, I want you to do it face to face. I said, Lord, that's a really bad idea. Because he's volatile. He could just take a swipe. Forgive me for what? I could see him slapping me. I could see, and suddenly I, I, I'm driving there, and my wife looks over at me. She goes, what's wrong? I said, the Lord just told me I'm to forgive my dad. She, she goes, well, you did. And I said, no, no, face to face. Now, she's known my dad now for years. And she goes, ooh. <laughs> ooh. <laughs> and I'm going, <laughs> and I literally said this in the car. I have 41st cousins, and I know half of them will be there married with children. So there's going to be 20, 30, 40 people there. And I said, Lord, I don't want to do this in front of people because I don't want to dishonor my dad by saying I forgive him in front of people. That's my excuse. So if you have him out in the backyard all alone, I'll do it. And I know that won't happen because in his backyard is his garden, and he shows everyone his garden ad nauseum for long periods of time. So <laughs> I just know, okay, I, Lord, I put it out there. There's my fleece. I get in, my dad's now remarried, a wonderful, sweet Christian woman. And we, I get into the house and I look around and I, I say, Marion, where's dad? And she goes, oh, he's out in the, in the backyard all by himself. 
slick. Very slick, God. <laughs> You're God, I'm not. Okay, I get it. So I go out to the backyard, and I go out to my dad, and I always shook hands far away. I said, hi, dad, because I just wanted to be far away. <laughs> and, and he goes, look at my garden. I go, yeah, dad. He goes, oh, those tomatoes are just amazing. And so look at all the peppers, how they're coming. And I, I'm, I, I just know that any moment someone's going to come. And I hear the Lord saying, now, now, now. I go, ah. I said, dad, I need to talk to you about something. He goes, yeah, what? I said, it was about when you lived with us years ago. No, it was quiet, just like that. He goes, what? <sighs> I didn't want to hear what. I wanted to hear, yeah, what's on your heart? I've never heard that before, but I would like to. And suddenly the Lord goes, now. And I'm looking, I'm thinking of all the things that I should forgive him for, and I can't remember anything. My mind is blank. All the Lord said was to forgive him. So I just say, I just wanted to say, and I'm trying to think, of something to forgive him for, and I can't. I just wanted to say that I love you and I forgive you for anything that ever happened. And I said, I threw in love. What was I thinking? I, I, and I forgave him for everything, and I didn't even tell him what it was. And I'm going like, oh. And he says nothing. The Lord says, put your arm around him. I put my arm around him, and he starts crying. And he starts bending like this, and he's just bawling, and snot is coming out of his nose. He's drooling. It's coming from his eyes. That's every orifice up here. I, I was expecting his ears to explode. You know, he's just like this, and he's getting lower and lower, and he's I, I, trying to hold on to him, and he gets lower, and he grabs me around the waist, grabs my belt to, to keep himself steady. The second he hits me, I start crying, and I don't know what I'm crying about. I have no clue why I'm crying. I'm just crying. I'm bending over crying. He's bending over crying. And we both are, we're just liquid. About two or three minutes goes by. It seemed like forever. It really was not a long time, but two or three minutes standing there, pushing your butt out, crying with your father. It looks pretty stupid in the backyard. <clears throat> we get all done and we're, we have no tissues. So I just have this idea. I said, dad, he goes, what? And I just go like this and grab everything. <laughs> nice tomatoes. <laughs> And he saw what I did, because we got to clean ourselves off before we turn around, because they're all behind us. And he goes, the corn's coming in really nice. And I go, yeah, and I just, we go back and forth about the flowers and about the beans. And we, but we're laughing, and our arms are around each other. My dad has never held me, and I've never held him. So he lets go, and he goes, I, I need to go in and make myself presentable. And he goes in the house, and I didn't know what to do. I was like, what just happened? And the day went on, and it came time to go, and something had broken. I didn't know what had broken. So when I went to say goodbye, I just came up, goodbye, Dad, and I put my arms around him. And he goes, whoa, what are you doing? He goes, oh, sorry, I hug everybody. He goes, bring it in. So I bring it in. He goes, come on, hug me. Okay. And he goes, okay, my turn. And he brings his arms around. He goes, okay, let's do this every time we meet. I said, really? He goes, yeah, yeah every time. So we do, do that for three or four years. I go to a Catholic charismatic community for a weekend to help them with their worship. While I'm there, everybody kisses there. And I'm, I'm getting kissed, but the first kiss was a guy named Brian. He comes up, hi, I'm Brian. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> he says, I'm sorry, Romans 16, 16 says to greet one another with a holy kiss and we kiss. It just means that what's mine is yours. I said, whose Mercedes is that outside? 
<laughs> and he goes, not that far. <laughs> so I get kissed, I get kissed. I'm, by the third day, I'm kissing dogs and trees and everything. You, know, you just get into the community like that, you're kissing. My dad calls, hey, stop by the house. Michael Jordan's playing a game. We stop by the house on the way back. I greet him with a hug, and I give him a kiss on the cheek. He goes, whoa. Do that again. I kiss him. He takes my face. He goes, let's add this to the hug. I said, okay, Dad. Okay. And we go on and on. And he tells me that he's prayed the prayer at the end of the 007 show. He said, I, that's 007 show you told me to watch. I prayed the prayer at the end of the 007 show. I said, James Bond has a show. Lord, let me only kill who I'm supposed to kill. I finally said, Dad, I don't understand. He goes, the 007. Finally, his wife goes, 700 Club. Oh, I said, Dad, that's the, the prayer of salvation. He goes, I know what it was. I said, Dad, that means you're my brother. He goes, I don't know about that, but I know I'm your father. <clears throat> and we go on this journey. Suddenly he has this thing with the, the doctor. He doesn't know what it is. It's an x-ray. The Lord tells me to go with him to the hospital. Yeah, uh, wherever Victor is, come on up, buddy, because right now I need your soothing music so I can get through this. <laughs> By the way, can we just thank Victor for all his hard work? <laughs> These guys are here early, and they stay late, and then they put stuff away, and, and wow. So I get to my... <clears throat> I go with my dad to the hospital. <clears throat> they're doing a, um, they're, they're going through a, uh, a local anesthesia, which means you're awake. So they put in Novocaine, lidocaine. And I worked in surgery for a number of years as a uh, assistant in surgery. And so they, they go like that and then they start cutting until it hurts. And then they put more lidocaine in and they cut until it hurts and they get through the different layers and then they take this thing called a trocar and push it through the ribs to get a specimen of the lungs. They're trying to find out, are we having fun? I'm looking at some of you going, ah, I'm so sorry. <laughs> but this is what happened. So I'm there literally with my dad because I'd worked there. They let me hold his hand during surgery and he was in extreme pain and they couldn't get, and time went by, time went by, and time went by, and they couldn't get... Um, a, a specimen, they said, we're going to have to have you come back. So they brought him back the next week. They had him over on his side. They came through the side with the same thing with lidocaine, lidocaine, cut, cut, ouch, lidocaine. And they just went through the same thing and they didn't get a specimen. So they said, you're going to have to come back and we'll put you under general anesthesia. My dad said, will I be awake? They said, no, sir, it's general anesthesia. Will I be awake? No, you'll be asleep. That's all I wanted to hear. I don't want any more. I'm awake and you poke me and cut me. He goes, no, sir, you'll be asleep. So it comes time and I, I get his stretcher. I take him down to the holding room. The nurse, holding room nurse is there. Surgeon's there. Resident's there. Anesthesiologist is there. There was a medical student there and the nurse from the room. So they're all there around him. And the surgeon says, Mr. Dupre, say goodbye to your wife and your son. So Marion's at the end. You can picture his head is here and his legs go out that way. And she's here and the stretcher has these side rails that come up, stainless steel side rails. And she leans over and she gives my dad a kiss. 
And I'm, I'm waiting for her to move out of the way so that I can come and give my dad a kiss on the cheek. She doesn't move. And I'm going, oh no. I guess I'm going to have to lean over. So I lean over the rails and I grab dad's hand. In a hand, we shake hands like this, but I grab him like one of these manly shakes. And I go like this. I said, love you, dad. And he holds my hand like this and he looks at the doctors and he goes, we never do this. We don't do this. And he goes, you don't do what? And I said, he goes, let me show you what we do. And I know it means I'm going to kiss him. So he reaches over, grab, he's kind of strong as an ox, grabs my belt, lifts me up, and I drop onto the rail right across my gut. I'm breathing like this. <laughs> and my dad takes my head, just like Jesus had done with my chin in the back of my head, and he turns and kisses both of my cheeks, turns my head, points at me and goes, this is my son. He's great and I love him. And now for the first time, I just knew this wasn't gonna happen. <laughs> for the first time in my life, my dad is in public declaring his affection for me. My heart is breaking. I, it's, my life is changing and he lets me down. He goes, that's not enough. And he pulls me back. This time it goes right underneath my rib. I just hit down and go down on it. I'm like, I wanna scream, but I want to look manly. So I just go, ah. And he takes my face on both sides like Jesus did. And I'm looking at him and he's looking at me and I'm realizing he's got my cheeks. There's only a small runway that he could kiss. <laughs> and I know it's not gonna be my forehead. <laughs> and I know he's not going after my schnoz. So I look and go, in my mind I go, okay, whatever you do. He goes, I love you. Kisses me on the lips. <clears throat> I said, I love you too, dad. And he set me down. He goes, okay, now you can take me. <clears throat> and the elevator doors were about from here to those doors over there. So they go about six, eight feet, and my dad goes, stop. They go, what's wrong, Mr. Dupre? He goes, I can't see my son. He didn't say I can't see my son and wife. He said, I can't see my son. When I mentioned that to her later while we were waiting, she said, I, he picked me from three billion people. You're the one that you needed to know how much he loved you. And now he's seeing me and I'm looking at him and he's looking at me and he's going backwards like this. And he goes, love you. And I go, I love you. He goes, no, 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 I love you more. He goes, no, no, I love you more. And the doctor has not left yet. The other guys are by the door. They go, um, um, excuse me, doctor, we need to go. And he just looks at me and goes, just a minute. He wants to watch. The girl pulling the stretcher is starting to cry. The girl next to me is starting to cry. She goes, has it always been like this between you and your dad? No, it hasn't. And she pulls him further and he goes. <clears throat> he has pulled out his heart for me. He throws me his heart and I catch it. I put it in my chest. And I said, wait a minute. I pulled my heart out. And I throw it at him, and he pretends I, I shot some bad shot, and he goes. <laughs> and he puts it in his chest. 
and he gets he gets to the the doors, and now they're going to open any minute. He goes. He starts shooting love bullets at me. And I, this is before Matrix, and I'm like, I'm going like this. <clears throat> and the nurse that's next to me, she's bawling her eyes out. Gosh, I've never seen this, this is amazing. And so I, I load up and I start shooting him, and he starts flailing. The difference is, I'm fully clothed. <laughs> yeah, I'll just leave it at that. The nurse goes, listen to pray, listen to pray. <laughs> Pulls the drapes down. <clears throat> Elevator door opens. They pull him in. He looks at me. The door is starting to close, and he, he follows the door. Goes over the edge of the stretcher and goes, I love you. Puts his thumb up in the air. That's the last time I saw my dad alive. He died on the table. And I was crying, and Marion was crying, and she fell into my arms, and I'm holding her, and she's crying and crying. And then suddenly I just had this nudge from the Lord. And it was, your father and you both got a gift. The doctor came in, and he said, I don't know why your father was alive. His heart and lungs had metastasized, which means they literally turned to stone, and they've been that way for weeks, probably months. He shouldn't have had a heartbeat. He shouldn't have been able to breathe. And, I, and the fear that my father had with this, when he got it, he said, I don't want to die of lung cancer and slowly just choke to death. He went to sleep. But the gift I got, when I sat there holding Marion and she's weeping, the Lord said, I showed you my face. And then I, I superimposed his face. You saw the father's face. When you see the Father's face, 2 Corinthians 3, what you behold is who you become. I saw this loving Father who was unashamed in love with me, not afraid to tell the highest of the highest, the doctors of the land, that I was his son, he loved me, and that I was special. From that moment on, I knew the heart of a father, and I knew the heart of the Father. It was more than just religion. It is a God who wants Here's the thing. Jesus came to reveal the Father. He didn't come to reveal the head of the army of God. He didn't come to reveal the top servant in the land. He came to reveal the Father. Why? Because he wants a family. He wants sons and daughters. Do me a favor. Just right where you're at. Just close your eyes. Put your hand, one hand on your heart. Put one hand on your eyes. I want to pray for your hearts. And I want to pray for vision to see. Lord, I pray that you would enter into an, a time in this next season in each person's life where you would break down in their heart those things that keep them from being intimate with you. Those things that want them to be satisfied with a religious life of doing church and not loving their father. And I pray that the eyes of each person here would see in a deeper and greater way what you want us to see. Not what is good to see, but what you want us to see. How you want us to see your face, your smile. When we see the smile of God, our hearts come alive. 
When we see friends smile, we know we're loved. And so I ask that the Father's smile would be seen by each one here and that we would be a people who love because we're first loved. I thank you for each one. Let your Father's heart penetrate deeply in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We pray that this word will bring light to dark places, life to dead places, hope to desperate places, and heaven to earthly places.